Welcome to season two of One Orange Socks podcast, Talking Sock. This season, I continue my talks with artists in Australia and overseas. To kick things off, I am joined by master marionettist Ronnie Burkett in this two-hour international special. Rehearsal begins at the drafting table for me. It's not when the puppet is finished at all. It's so nice to be back here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your place for puppetry arts and practitioners in Australia and now abroad. My name is Pete Davidson and I would like to firstly acknowledge the traditional owners on the land in which I am coming to you from today from Melbourne, which is Wurundjeri land. I would like to acknowledge um, Aboriginal people past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I would like to welcome to you our first episode of season two with our guest who needs no introduction, coming to us all the way from Puppet Land in Toronto, <laughs> Canada. It's Ronnie Burkett. Ronnie, thank you so much for being on Talking Sock. Pete, I'm your first abroad. Wow. <laughs> thank you. That, the international thank glory. You. Well, you know, I love, I love your podcast so much and you know, my affinity with, with Australia. So every episode was interesting or an old pal or someone I'd met and, and, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's just such a pleasure. And I just want to say also on the record officially your support throughout season one. And that was when I was in, you know, the midst of my lockdown here in Melbourne, you know, your audio sound bites and just, just, just the lovely support through your Instagram has been so lovely and it's the best. So thank you for being here. This feels so fitting to have you as the first guest on the show. Thank you. Ronnie, first question. Why puppets, Ronnie? For me personally, when I discovered puppets, it just made sense for a loner child who had all these split focus dreams of wanting to make stuff, wanting to tell stories, wanting to act, wanting to not be in this vessel that I'd been assigned at birth, you know? And so I think when I saw a picture in the World Book Encyclopedia of Bill Baird and his wife surrounded by all these characters, animals, humans, fantastic creatures, I went, that's it for me. Because that means I can do all of those things. I can draw, I can sculpt, I can make, I can tell stories, I can make funny voices. And when you're a loner child, I can do it by myself. So (laughs) that was the initial impulse of why I love puppetry and wanted to pursue it. And I've got to say, it's still true today, you know, especially with the conversations we're having now that are overdue and, and necessary and hard, you know, about visibility and inclusivity in the arts and certainly in the theater, you know, in a weird way, it allowed me to be gender fluid before we even had that term. I could be the fairy princess, the wicked witch, the three pigs, the big bad wolf, and the leading man. So for me, it has always been the most superior performing art form of them all, because it's not reliant on this, you know, this shell that I'm stuck in, in this age, and this gender and skin tone. Puppetry is limitless. So for me, that's why puppetry. Far out. That is huge. Can I ask, how old were you when this kind of 
dropped? I was seven uh, when that happened. My parents had bought a set of encyclopedia and uh, I was bothering my mother and she said, go look at the books. And I grabbed a random volume. I, volume. I sat on the floor and it was the P volume. We now know. And I just grabbed it, opened it up and it fell open to this two page spread on puppetry. And I looked at it and my mother called me for lunch and I said, oh, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life and close the book. You know, the joke has always been in our family. It should have fallen open to plumber, podiatrist, you know, a pediatrician, God, anything but puppetry. But no, it was puppetry. And I think that Christmas I got a silly little um, lion hand puppet uh, in my Christmas stocking, which I took to school and coerced my teacher into letting me do a show with a couple other kids who got puppets. And it lasted probably two hours and everyone else lost interest. And I just kept going. Oh God, I love that. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show and have you speak the way that you do. You were such a great storyteller. And last season I ran an episode called Master and Apprentice with my puppet right. master, Catherine Hannaford. Ronnie, I would need to know who was your master who taught you puppetry? And if there was none, how did you find mastery yourself? There were, there were many. First part of call was the library. And because I, and I think you might understand this, but I think it's more Canadian than an Australian thing. But because we're a far-flung colony, the library had British books and American books. And British and American puppetry styles are quite different, actually, mm, certainly yeah. in the books. And so it was 50-50. So I had this equal uh, influence of American puppetry and British puppetry coming at me through the library. And some of those books had addresses of puppet organizations in the back. And one had the educational puppetry Association in Britain, who I wrote, and Violet Philpot, who a legendary British oh puppeteer, gosh. wrote me back. And I wrote her back, and she wrote me back. So we had an exchange. And years later, when I was playing at the Barbican in London, Violet came to my show, and I, I can't tell you how thrilling that was for me. She didn't remember writing mm. those letters because she wrote so many of those letters to young puppet enthusiasts, but she became a very, very dear friend to me. And I'm glad I got to know her personally. It also had the puppeteers of America and I wrote them and, you know, I was, I was, I'm very, you're not going to believe this. I'm actually shy and I'm a bit of a hermit, but I'm ballsy when I want something. So I, <laughs> I wrote the puppeteers of America and said, how may I join your organization? I have no money. I'm a child. And the secretary of the puppet Tears of America wrote back and said, we're giving you a junior membership for free for one year. Oh. And so I got the puppetry journal and in the puppetry journal was an ad for the Stevens correspondence course in puppetry, 20 sessions for $30. Uh, oh. You got a session mailed to you every week. And it was written by Martin Stevens. And I took that when I was 12 years old, I think. Goodness. And it went through voice work, script work, publicizing your show, how to carve a counterbalance marionette, hand puppets, puppet stages, casting. Um, and the, the last session, the deal was you would write your questions to Martin Stevens and he would write session 20 for you. I just never let session 20 end. So he was stuck with me. And uh, at some point in my teens, I announced that I was 
free to come visit over the Easter holidays and pick me up at the Elkhart airport, won't you? Because my parents were insane. They would oh. put this child on airplanes to cross the border and go stay with people that they had never met. So, <laughs> which I don't think would happen now. Sorry, but off I not. went, you know, and I would write people, you know, Noreen Young was a huge, so Martin Stevens was, was my key mentor, the great mentor of my life. And, and I will say that everything in the Stevens Correspondence Course of Puppetry is still the foundation of everything for me, writing and voice work and all of that stuff. I mean, I've certainly expanded on it and had more training with other people in various aspects, but it still pretty much holds true as the basis of everything I do. When I was 10 years old, I wrote Noreen Young, who was a legendary Canadian television puppeteer, and uh, she had a show called High Diddle Day, and I wrote her a fan letter, but it was mostly, how do you make those rubber puppets? <laughs> and Lord help her. She sat down and wrote a four page handwritten letter to a child explaining her technique, where to buy the rubber. Here's the address of the company in Quebec that sells the rubber. And she told me her whole technique in a four page letter. How Boom. And she's been stuck with me ever since. So I met her when I was 10. So I've known Noreen uh, over 50 years and, you know, we're still in contact and we love each other dearly. But I wrote a lot of fan letters, Pete, and God forbid any of them wrote me back because I took it as friends for life. And I'm going to bombard you with questions <laughs> and eventually and eventually invite myself to come stay with you for two weeks. So <laughs> I feel like maybe the podcast is the modern letter. But anyway, uh, <laughs> well, uh, well I, you know. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have this kind of connectivity. You know, I didn't have no. social media. I mean, I know young puppeteers who met from their YouTube pages when they were teenagers and they're best friends to this day. And they talk to each other every uh, night by video call or whatever way they're communicating. Uh, I didn't have that. I had to mail a letter, wait for it to come back. And in the six weeks or the two months waiting for a reply... I would just go build more puppets and take more photographs and get the photographs developed and send them those pictures, you know? So it was a yeah. so very, it was a much slower process than it would be today. But it's funny because, you know, we've got online courses like what Bernda Grognik's doing, you know, in Iceland and it's a, it's a correspondence course, like you mentioned, but it's just digital. But for me, the yeah. fact that that's something like that existed and it was a mail out, I wish, where, where are those lessons? I want to read them. I want to see them. Like, well, Lumen Code in, uh, in uh, British Columbia, who has Charlemagne Press, which publishes only puppet books, he reprinted it as one volume. So you can... Where is it? It must be right behind me. Ronnie's looking. He's in enormous bookshelf. There we go. Oh my There's gosh, the he's reprint. got it. So, there it is. And it's, it's even got uh, some of the sample session 20s that he wrote for various people, including mine in here. Uh, yeah, so this is available, actually. I'm geeking yeah. out. Just an extension, Ronnie, to why puppets? Why marionette specifically? Well... You know, Pete, I started off with hand puppets, um, schlepped hand puppet shows around. And then, of course, mostly uh, marionettes uh, from the get-go, because uh, my first real exposure to puppetry was Bill Baird in the World Book Encyclopedia. And that same year at Christmas, The Sound of Music came out, and there was the Lonely Goat Herd scene. There was. So thus began my lifelong obsession with Bill Baird. I, so I wrote him when I was seven, uh, or seven. ten, maybe. No, seven. I think I was seven because I found his address in some children's magazine that they had at school. And 
was talking about him. And so I wrote him and said, I would like to come live with you. And he never wrote back. So when I was 10, I wrote him again and said, no, seriously, I'm prepared to leave my family and move to New York and live with you. Didn't hear from him. At 14, I was getting a little frustrated. So I wrote him again and said, <laughs> listen, seriously, I'm dying. I'm dying in school. You've got to save me. I will come to New York, adopt me, whatever, whatever you didn't hear from him. Wrote him in university when I was about to leave the theater school I was in. And I quoted the last paragraph of his book, The Art of the Puppet, where he said, it's our duty to train young puppeteers and pass this along. So I quoted that in a letter. And I said, <laughs> I am dying in theater school. You owe it to me. I'm the next one. Would you please hire me? Oh. Didn't hear back from him. So I... This is, I can, I'm going to veer off here. This is such a good story. So uh, <laughs> I quit theater school, saved up a bunch of money because I heard there was an UNIMA Congress in Moscow. I believe it was 1976. And there was this a tour group being put together of American puppeteers. And, and so I, I got a Joe job for four months, saved up all the money I needed, got all the visa stuff to go to Russia. And at the age of 18, I went to Moscow. Now, I was telling, I'd forgotten this part of this story until last week I was telling someone, and they were like, are you kidding? That was one trip. So I had to fly from where I lived in Western Canada eastward uh, and meet the group, I think, in New York. But I managed to book my flight so I could stop in Ottawa for three days because I invited myself to go stay with Noreen Young, my hero from television puppetry. Mm -hmm. So I just landed. Yeah. And spent three days. Then we went to Moscow and I met Bill Baird and he said, oh, I, yeah, I remember your letters. I, I, I could never find your address. And anyway, are you going to be in New York anytime you should come audition? And I said, well, after this, we go to New York for two days. I'll be there. He said, OK, come and audition. So Heck yeah. that was Moscow. Saw the most amazing puppetry I've ever seen in my life. Blew my head off because yeah. it was the Abrazza Theater, you know, it was the state theater. I do. <laughs> then after that, we went and we'd gone to Poland and saw Polish puppetry. And then we went wow. to England. But I had wrangled an invitation to leave the group for a day and go to Elstree Studios as a guest of Jim Henson to watch The Muppet Show being shot. I Because I found my little um, thing to present at security saying, Mr. Hansen has invited Ronnie Burkett. So that's what, so, so I did that. And then we flew to New York and on my 19th birthday, I auditioned for Bill Baird and he hired me. So I, I hit all of those puppet stops on one trip. And that was, one Pete, that was, that was my master's degree. <laughs> you know, that was my yep. <laughs> undergraduate and my master's degree in puppetry. So uh, I, I don't know. So Bill Baird, what, what I guess, was a mentor in a way. Uh, Noreen Young certainly was. The books were writing letters just constantly. You know, I, I had this sense that people knew something I needed to get to the next step. And they had to answer my question about mold making or foam rubber or latex or marionette control, whatever. They just had to. They couldn't resist me because I was like, I'm the next one. Give it to me, please. <laughs> Not that I was the next one. I was one of the next ones. But yeah, I just it strikes me because it's regardless of, you know, however many years ago it was or it is still that same thing with puppeteers and the generosity of that spirit of giving knowledge and passing knowledge continue. I just, it's a through line that I have found throughout this entire journey of learning about puppetry and learning about yeah. people's experiences of trying to get 
the training that they they desire and you know that to me just speaks to the community that we have I think I yeah and I I, I would like to be on the record of saying I, I don't know of another human being who's been the recipient of more kindness and generosity of spirit than me you know from really great artists and from a community but I, I find that the greatest artists are the most generous a technique isn't something to be competitive or secretive about. It's what you do with that technique that makes you an artist and gives you a point of view. So that's, that's far and wide in puppetry now, you know, that sharing of information, like you mentioned. Now, obviously, you're we're coming to you from Puppetland. And so mm. you are surrounded by 1,300 books, it is. And there's uh, 1,600 1, <laughs> books. I stand yeah. corrected. Um, so tell us about Puppetland, you know, this magical place all of us baby puppeteers want to run away to. And how long have you had it? And what's your setup? And um, I think I've been here. 12 years. I had a much larger studio before I came here in a huge warehouse building uh, that I think was 1,400 square feet with 14 foot ceilings. And it, it, it was is fairly large. Uh, but the way of all cities, uh, that building had been all it had been a, a square city block of artist studios. And the third floor of that building was all pornography studios. So, you know, it was, it was an inner city dump warehouse building. And of course, now it has lawyers offices and fancy restaurants and there's condo towers all around it. So um, anyway, uh so I, I downsized a little bit. I'd been looking for a place to live and work for eight years, I think, um, because all I do is tour and and then I'm in the studio when I'm home. So I was losing like my best hours of the day getting to a studio on public transit and then getting home at 11 o'clock at night on an hour on streetcars and stuff. So so this place is a storefront. It's I think it used to be a diner in its original incarnation. It, it was a nail salon when I found it, but it has the original terrazzo floors, the original pressed tin ceiling, 12 foot ceilings, and the apartment is right upstairs. And it's, uh, I can access it from within the building without even leaving. So it's such a beautiful room. And why it works for me, Pete, is it's not overly large, but we can get six people in here working if we have a deadline and it's very happy and comfortable, but it's also completely comfortable to walk down in the middle of the night in the dark and be here by myself. It's not so overwhelmingly large. And in the back is a tiny little wood shop, uh, which is sort of Ronnie's man cave uh, where I spend <laughs> most of my time, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a lovely little building. We have a courtyard that we built and there's been many puppeteer dinners out there well into the evening. It's just, it's a, it, it just feels right here. It's good. I'm interested. So what is, what is a day in the studio look like to you? Like when, when do you start? How, what do you get into? Are you just tinkering in the back? Or? Are we talking pre COVID or currently? <laughs> Whichever answer you want to give me, I'll accept. Well, I'm highly disciplined. So um, pre COVID, I would rarely wander down here in my pajamas. You know, I made a rule that this is my workspace and come to work, Ronnie, just as you would go anywhere else. And I, typically was getting up at 5.30 in the morning and, you know, I'd be down here by 6, 6.30, ready to go. And if someone was coming to work, and, and a lot of times I would have an apprentice or an assistant working in the studio who would show up usually 10 o'clock in the morning, say. So I would get at least three hours to myself to daydream, get going, lay out their work, get my work set up, 
And depending on what was going on, it would either be sculpting or it'd be a drafting day or it'd be a carving day. Since COVID, uh, every day has been kind of like Sunday in here. So Sunday was, <laughs> trust me, if I'm not on the road, I'm in this room every day, even if I'm not working on something, because I have a whole floor. I have a whole floor of a building to myself. So why wouldn't I come down here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And on Sundays, I just would not turn on the light, the overhead lights. You know, I might have a work lamp on or daylight or whatever. And I, Sundays, I usually just sit and daydream. I, I won't lie. I'll just daydream or think of something and get a book off the shelf and stare at it. But it was kind of my daydream day. So COVID has been kind of a lot of Sundays in this room, to tell you the truth. But I'm gearing up to do a whole bunch of new work now. So I, I feel that I feel that I'm getting back on that track of getting up in the morning, being ready, being dressed, coming down and, 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 and greeting the day in this room while I still have it, you know? So. I'm, you know, I'm interested because it's, it's April 9 here, April 8 in Canada and your city, Toronto has just gone back into lockdown. Um, and I want to know, you know, our international community of people want to know what, what is, what is the future of theater in Toronto? Do you think, and how do you feel like, um, your, your city will recover from all this? I'm, I'm, I'm worried, you know, I, I will say I was, I was one of uh, a little pack of renegades over the last 20 years or so of uh, dealing with actors equity who don't understand artist created work, you know, uh, to the point of, I have to sign a contract with myself as the producer and as the performer and sign both lines and promise that I won't renege on paying me. And yeah, it, like it got a little ridiculous of yeah. self-producing your own work and creating. And so we've been trying to educate Actors' Equity about that. And it's a growing trend, I think, in every country of artist-created work. Well, what has happened by proxy of COVID is the theater has kind of shuttered and crumbled. We don't know who's going to survive, truly, mm -hmm. what companies will survive. I think, for the most part, I try and think, well, here we go. We're just going to reinvent the theater, finally. You know, we're, we're going to make it anew. Uh, I don't think theaters are going to open in Canada before spring of 2022. So I've got another full year before uh, I, th I mean, I have, a, I have a booking for May of 2022, but it's in Germany. So um, that's all I got on the, on the table. But I, I, I do think artists have to be nimble right now. And, and I see it in our community. There's been a lot of online stuff. That's not something I naturally am drawn to and not something I want to do. So I've got other plans in mind of how to, how to do this. But it, it is, without a doubt, devastating to the global theater community. It's devastating. And, uh, you know, what always happens, too, because we have film and TV production going on here. We, we're solid with film and TV production. Yeah. Um, and we've lost a lot of great theater people who need by uh, just paying their rent and, and getting groceries, they've gone into the film world, you know, great scenic designers who are now, you know, dressers or great costume builders who are getting paid insane money to work in film and television. And, and I wonder if we'll get them back at the theater if once they've been paid that kind of film and TV money. So it'll be very interesting to see how we reemerge. And the biggest, the biggest thing to Pete is when will the audience feel comfortable enough to reassemble in those rooms with us? Oh, that's a big one. 
you know, yeah. just, just on this end though, you know, we've just had the Melbourne International Comedy Festival here in Melbourne and we've been out of lockdown now for possibly just, oh, just, just touching on six months and Melbourne's back. So I don't think it would take too long. It just, it, it is obviously everything's COVID safe. Everything's very different. COVID is constantly by every single QR code you, you, you snap on. It is a constant yeah. reminder, but I, I feel like people are so desperate to be out and to see, you know, theater again. It, I, I, I feel like audiences bounce back quite quickly. Well, I, I do agree with you on that. That is, that's the most salient point. I think of this whole discussion is that because of isolation, people are going to be, I know people already are. I have audience members that I'm in touch with who are yearning to go sit in the theater and be told an acoustic story again. You know, they're yearning for it. Um, and so I think while we will see more digital creation and more digital product from artists as an ongoing thing, more online learning, a lot of stuff will continues. Working from home will allow more flexibility, but I think the theater is going to, be just fine. I do because it is that one primal sit in the dark and be told a story experience that you, you have to be in the room to get. I mean, you know, it's great because you're in puppet land and you've got these 1600 books behind you, but like you've been in lockdown for quite a while now and you've, you've been using Instagram to kind of post archival content, vaudeville acts and vintage puppetry. And I see this deep respect for those who've come before you and I can see you kind of actively reflecting and, and daydreaming about these different um, people. So who are these people? And, and, and is this an intentional thing that you're doing by posting out the old masters and sort of giving sort of an education to our young puppeteers who are following you, you know, is that a very intentional act? Totally intentional. And, and that came about, um, you know, the first year I, I was a guest artist at the O'Neill puppetry conference at the Eugene O'Neill theater center. Uh, my first group, the first year I was there coerced me to sign up for Facebook because they wanted to keep in touch with me. Oh, funny. And so I got onto Facebook and, and I very quickly realized that a lot of younger puppeteers, and, and this is not me being shady or slagging anything, did not know anything about puppetry pre-Jim Henson. That just is a kind of yeah. huge fact in our world right now. And I thought, well, I have a lot of this knowledge. Uh, I'm not an academic. I'm not a historian, but I know pretty much everything in those books. And I, I know my influences. So wouldn't it be interesting to show some of that stuff? And, and I worked a lot on albums of certain puppeteers for Facebook. And, you know, I haven't been on Facebook for maybe over three years now, but Instagram, you know, I, I, came up with this naff idea to do a thing called Puppet Tuesday, which is just images from puppetry that inspire me. And so, yeah, it is very intentional as a way of saying, did you know about this amazing artist who did this thing? And these Russian puppet films from the 1950s that had live hands because Hansen didn't invent live hands on puppets without being shady just going look this was in the 50s in russia look what they were doing so i think that goes over fairly well you know people seem to like it well people it love the bedtime engaged. stories so the <laughs> bedtime stories i think are like the oh, the reason i go to instagram on a tuesday you know it's I have to say, I, I see a show emerging from the Bedtime Stories series of work that you've been doing. <laughs> it's been so wonderful. Tell us about the Bedtime Stories and, and how you've sort of 
cultivated a little community of people to come and listen to you speak, you know, every week. Well, bedtime stories happened in really, really early on in the first lockdown a year ago, you know, um, when I, I really was trying to be a cheerleader of saying, yeah. you know what, we're going to get through this. And, uh, you know, I was one of those people in the first few weeks posting things saying, well, you're at home, you're not going anywhere. This would be a great time to sit down and learn to sculpt or learn to, you know, there's been a lot of backlash, not with me personally, over the year of, of, you know, therapists saying, you can forgive yourself. You don't have to write King Lear this year. You don't have to make the great (laughs) puppet show at the, you know, so, and I get that now, but I didn't know this was going to last this long. And so I, I remember the first one I did, I think was uh, just saying, Hey, and I think it was in the first week, Pete, of just saying, the world encyclopedia of puppetry arts is online. So you know what? You can access all this information from Unima online about the history of puppetry in any country. And it's in pretty much any language too. Yeah. So it's, it's available. And then I told a story about Egon Schiele, my, one of my favorite artists who was a, a protege of Gustav Klimt in, in Vienna and how that he died in his 20s from the Spanish flu plague and his pregnant wife had died just prior to him. And so I was saying, you know, we've got to take this seriously. And, and so that was a little story. But then, then I just sort of turned the camera on myself one night. And I think I told some naff story about some nonsense I'd done on the road or somebody I'd met or some funny, stupid story. And that's, that's how that started. And, uh, you know, those first... Three months in lockdown got to be a bit stir crazy. I'm not used to being home this often or this long, you know, unless I'm building a show. So I would paddle down here at night after dinner and I didn't even have a, I didn't even have like a little tripod. I didn't have a ring light. I had nothing. I would just hold the phone in front of my face and tell these, you know, 12 minute stories that, that weren't rehearsed or scripted. It was just bedtime stories from puppet land. Yeah. You know, we've just been talking about theatre and how it's coming, you know, how it might come back. Uh, how do you think your shows, because you do tour so much, how do you feel like your show will come back and how will Puppetland be a part of that? Well, you know, it's interesting because the the two shows you've seen, Pete, the Daisy Theatre and Forget-Me-Not, are uh, the Daisy Theatre has a bit of audience participation. You know, I call people up from the audience, they come up on the bridge, they lie down on the floor, they take off their shirts, whatever they need to do (laughs) in that bit of nonsense. But forget me not is completely immersive. It's saying to a hundred people a night here, here's a hand puppet, stick your hand in this hand puppet that somebody else had their hand in last night. And I'm going to sweat very close to you and you're going to move around you're going to touch flashlights and you're going to touch each other. And I might hug you at some point. Well, I have two very audience hands-on pieces right now that I don't know if I'm going to be doing those soon. So my thought over the last year was I need to create some new work that's not reliant on the audience that way, because that's where my work was intentionally going. This, This mad love affair with the audience. I wanted to be closer to them and closer to them, and I wanted to involve them. And now I think I have to pull back a little bit from the audience for a little while. So I'm making new work and I'm making new work not knowing what the, for I hate this word, what the marketplace will be. So I am mm. making a salon hand puppet show that would be for, you know, 12 people a, a night. It could either be in my studio or I could take it to your living room or I could do it in your garage or I could do it in a church hall. 
And you know what? That's how I started in puppetry. And I have no ego about that. And some of my favorite puppeteers work that way. They schlep their hand puppet stage around and they set it up themselves and they do the show and they carry on. And, and I did that for years. So I know how to do that. So I'm excited to make a silly little improvised hand puppet show called the Looney Bin. Um, <laughs> And then I'm going to make, uh, on Blind Faith, I'm going to make a typical Ronnie Marionette show, like the old scripted shows called Wonderful Joe, about a man and his dog who are going to be separated to take off on a fantastic adventure. It's not a pandemic piece, because I pray to God we don't see a bunch of solo shows about pandemic life, because we all have lived it, we don't need it. But a global audience will understand what isolation feels like now. So if you, so the, the premise of Wonderful Joe is is the thought of being isolated and detached, these two characters. So, you know, the old man's supposed to go to a nursing home and the dog's going to be sent off to be euthanized. And so they they make a break for it. Gosh, and they have this adventure, you know. Amazing. Uh, and it kills me. I love this show so much. Um, and it's very funny in, in spots too. You know, very, very funny. There's, you know, there's a bar where Santa Claus and Jesus Christ meet Mother Nature for cocktails, you know. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's still silly. Uh, the third show is the Daisy Theater is going to do Shakespeare because I had done <sighs> Christmas Carol with the Daisy Theater called Little Dickens. Uh, and so it was the Daisy Theater cast improvising through Christmas Carol. And Esme Massengill, the has-been fated star, was Scrooge and Schnitzel was Tiny Tim. And that, that's, oh my be, God. that's things going to be booked every Christmas for the rest of my life. So I thought <laughs> I really wanted to do Shakespeare and, and a lot of wise people that I trust and admire had said to me, Ronnie, you don't need to do Hamlet. You don't need to do a serious thing because your own work is your serious work. So here you have this golden thing called the Daisy Theater that will play forever and ever and ever. And I thought I thought that through and I went, yes, you know what? There's nothing more beautiful than seeing characters who shouldn't be playing that role cast in that role. And, <laughs> and, you know, and yeah. so we're going to tackle Romeo and Juliet because most people studied that at some point in school. Every, and even if you didn't, you know, the premise, two teenagers, totally warring households can't get together, fall in love. They die. Like everybody knows that it's like Christmas Carol. Everybody knows three ghosts, redemption, boom. So it's still a good Saturday night show. No one's yeah. going to feel like, I don't know Shakespeare. I can't go because it'll be, you know, Esme Mazengill playing the nurse or, or whatever. So, and, 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 and I'm always cursed Pete when I come up with a really good title. And so the title of the Daisy theater Shakespeare show is called little Willie. <laughs> you know, once yeah. I saw that, I, I saw the front curtain. I went there. I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> Nothing and, like the innuendo. The other show I'm doing is for two people at a time. That's four shows, Ronnie. That's four yeah. shows at the, over the, three years. Over three crikey. years. So that's that's the plan. Uh, the hand puppet show will come first, but the the uh, the two hand the, the show for two people at a time will take all three years to build because I need 500 puppet heads for it. So I'll be oh, okay. So you'll come into a little gallery or you'll come into a little Airstream trailer. It'll be a late night thing or a sideshow thing. It's called ham, sideshow hand job is what it's called. <laughs> you'll, you'll come in two at a time and you'll get five minutes or maybe 10, I don't know, to look at the 500 heads on the wall and pick two each. And you come and I'm sitting at a card table and you put them down and I make up a 20 minute story with those four characters on my bare hands. Now, this is something that you, you do and I've asked this question of you before, but I have to ask it again. And that is, you know, Daisy Theatre was 
40 odd puppets and you could put any two of them together and any audience member with those puppets and you would have an improvised scene complete with backstory and song and different ideas about how the two characters interrelate and their relationship. And then you're talking about now expanding that to 500 individual heads that you're going to have puppet backstory. How do you, how do you have that repository in your brain of how these characters can do all these different things? I just like, that's uh, what gets me. Because I, I view any part of the process as rehearsal. Let me explain. Well, if I'm at the drafting table drawing a marionette thing front and side full view to make patterns, basically, I'm acting that. I'm like, oh, I have to stand up. Does it, does, is he hunched over like, how does wonderful Joe stand? And what's that doing to his breathing apparatus? Is he like one of these guys? Or is he one of these guys? You know, and, and then I'm posturing and I'm drawing. So unbeknownst to me, I'm already deciding rehearsal stuff. And then when I sculpt the head, I've had this rule for years when I'm sculpting, no matter how beautiful this little uh, sculpture may be, if I can't give it voice while I'm sculpting it, it's not the right sculpt, smash it and start over until you can make a voice out loud. When I'm writing text work, I have an advantage over any playwright friend I know. I write aloud. I write in character voice aloud as I'm writing. I'm setting the rhythm and I'm making myself laugh or cry. You get to cry once when you're writing, you know, so I get it out (laughs) if I've written something moving. When I'm carving and jointing, especially jointing, I'm in rehearsal. Is this character going to sit? Do its hips need to do this? Does the arm need to cross the body? Do I have to put that joint in the upper arm so it can cross over to... So, and then, you know, costume. I'm I'm a costume freak, as you know. And and just spending hours and hours of, of dyeing fabric and beating it down and washing it and washing it until it's the right scale and it looks the right thing. So, so Pete, every step of the process for me is getting to know that character. So by the time the puppet's finished, I already know the voice. I've already made all the choices of why it moves that way, why it's dressed that way. And and so rehearsal begins at the drafting table for me. It's not when the puppet is finished at all. That's why. And, you know, I, I, I was, I, I, uh, had an interaction with a young puppeteer um, a few days ago. I think he got a bit cranky with me because, you know, he had, he had a night off and he was all set to do puppet building. He was all set and his gang of friends that he video chats with all bailed on him. And he was really upset because he was really wanting to go build puppets that night. I went, well, <laughs> you know, I pardon my language, but I said, when did puppetry become a circle jerk? I mean, it's a lonely <laughs> profession. And, and I said, frankly, you should be doing this on your own. So you're honestly engaged with the thing that's emerging and you're giving it a voice. You don't need a committee. It's not, it's not a quilting circle where you're just absentmindedly, maybe if you're doing the Henson stitch on 800 pieces of fabric, yes, you know, have a video chat and do that. That's a different thing. But if you're creating a character and sitting down to do that, why would you want to be talking to anyone else? So for me, you know, I, I think I've added this level of character emergence, if you will, just because it is a very lonely life and these things take forever to build. You know, when I'm building a show, I work 16 hours a day, seven days a week in this studio. It's, right. it's relentless. It's relentless. So I, I at least have to have a conversation with those characters as, as it's happening. 
Just to follow up on that, you mentioned the costumes. Do you create individual costumes for every character? Is that you who also does that level of detail? Because they're so beautiful in costumes as well. I design everything, but I have worked with the same costumer for over 30 years. Her name's Kim Crosley. And um, she is a cutter at the Stratford Festival. So she's a a real theater uh, costumer. That's how I met her. But Kim has done every costume for me for over 30 years. And so we have a kind of shorthand. And a lot of times I don't even have, like if I'm pushed for time or really lazy, I don't even have to do a drawing. We just put the puppet on her work table, hang it up. And a lot of times she'll come in and I pin the costume together. I like it with the fabric, like this kind of vibe like that. But what because I'm so, so particular, Every character's costume, like I've got stuff for the new shows just over here in a basket. Every piece of fabric for every character is in its own Ziploc big bag, all the trim, all the buttons. If it needed to be washed or dyed, it was washed or dyed. So it's all ready to go. So there's no sort of in the moment going, oh, if only I had a blue feather and then spending two hours looking for a blue feather. You know, that's <laughs> all decided before Kim gets here. So. Wow. Let's talk about those two shows that I have seen, Daisy Theatre and Forget Me Not. And, you know, we've already spoken so much about Forget Me Not here on this show with other guests because it was, particularly for Australian audiences, profound because you're inviting the audience to come in and and play with puppets. And for adults, I feel like that is both a terrifying and absolutely freeing experience. And, you know, you kind of punch drunk puppetry there, dude. Like you made this immersive piece of theatre. And I looked up and I saw all these pieces of paper suspended from the ceiling. And I later met you in the show and you told me that that was the script. Now, I'm 30 and relative to you, I only started with puppets five years ago. So I'm arriving a little bit late to the party and I've never written my own show and I've got to write two little ones in the next few months. So this like is very selfish, but (laughs) the level of nuance that you bring to your shows, it would be stupid not to ask you how you approach writing a show like the Daisy theater or forget me not. And, you know, how do you get yourself into a space to manifest a story and realize that into a whole show? Writing is the hardest thing to do. Uh, and I think any writer will tell you that I could, you know, I'm very disciplined. Pete. I'm like, I, we've talked about, you know, I come down here, I do the work. If there's 40 puppets, that's 80 legs that got to be carved. So I right. carve 80 legs, you know, that I can do even when I'm brain dead, but, oh, I can make every excuse on the planet not to sit down and write. You know, I famously every summer when I was writing a new big piece, it'd be like, this is my two week writing spree. I will not cook. I am, I am in process. And then I would just sit and stare at the thesaurus or my screen or go for a walk, you know, anything. Uh, It's hard. So, you know, with with, uh, Forget Me Not, I was writing everything on my laptop and it just wasn't coming. It wasn't the show I wanted. And because, as you know, the show is about love letters and curse of writing and this one person who does it and can read it. One day I realized I had to change the mechanics of what I was doing. I couldn't write on my laptop. So all 182 of those handwritten pages that float above you in the actual show was me sitting down with a pen and a pad of yellow foolscap going, start. And you you have to cross it out. You can't be precious. You can't use a thesaurus or a dictionary. You do not stop for anything. You just write in longhand cursive 
no looking up anything go and it 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 flew out of me it was fantastic now i i've always for the last 20 years had a dramaturg uh i worked with a woman named iris turcott who became probably one of my greatest friends of my life and she passed away three years ago uh but she believed there was no methodology to dramaturgy that every new project needed its vocabulary invented for that project and even though she worked with a stable of the same canadian playwrights over years she never said oh this is how i work with ronnie she would say what does ronnie need for this vocabulary so for example she would on one show i was blocked and i said i I," she's like you should write this scene i'm like i don't want to write that scene and she said you should write that scene i don't want to write that scene i'm i'm feeling romantic i want to write all this stuff she went you've written all that garbage already we're going to throw it all out so you should write this scene." and i was being really resistant and i sat down and wrote that scene and of course it was the missing link that I need it. And the the next show, she yelled at me. She said, stop writing. You've got to stop writing for six weeks. I said, why? I'm on a roll. She said, you're on a terrible roll. What you need to do is stop for six weeks, sculpt all the character heads so you can see them while you're writing. You're not seeing them. You're not making the voices. She said, you're not writing aloud because you haven't sculpted the damn heads yet. She knows my process. So I spent six weeks sculpting and with my rule of I have to make the voice. And I went back to writing six weeks later fully able to converse out loud with myself and write it down. Uh, Another show, she told me to stop writing because I wasn't envisioning the traffic pattern or what the environment was. She said, do the set model. So I took a month off, made 12 really bad set models until I found the one I wanted. And then there was the set model sitting on the work table in front of me while I wrote the script. So everything needs, especially with puppetry, Pete, I, I really think that we we separate things too much. It's like I was talking about the building process and finding character. I know the character by the time the puppet's finished. So right. I think we have to imbue puppet production with the same thing. Of If you're stuck writing the thing, what are you missing that's another important element of puppetry? Do you need the puppet? Do you need to experiment with what the puppet does before you write the thing? Uh, do you want to make the puppet smaller because you want to make it a more intimate thing? But I think we don't pose those questions of puppetry is all of these aspects that become the performance, which is all the audience cares about, you know. But writing is really hard. But for me, the number one thing I do, honest to goodness, is usually in hotel rooms on tour. I do a year of really Mm. bad writing. I call it doodle writing, but I improv out loud. I'm sure people are in the room next to me at three in the morning. They hear these mad dramatic conversations with all these people going on. And it's just one guy in there walking around in his underwear going, but Cecily, I told you, you mustn't go. I have to go, you know, or whatever I'm doing in there. And it's quite ridiculous. But once in a while, I'll get a little riff or a line or a little scene, and then I'll go write it down and not think about it, you know? And then, you know, because it's doodle writing, you look at it after a year and go, oh, garbage, garbage. Oh, that's good. That's good. That, oh, that's garbage. What was I drinking that night? But <laughs> but I, I fully encourage puppeteers who are writing, stand up, walk around, and talk out loud. Improv. You know what you want to write. Don't stress about sitting down and having to write it. You know, that's that's crazy stressful for a lot of people. Mm. But if you get up and just start having fun, that's what, you know, I have to always remind myself, Pete, I got into this because it looked like it was going to be fun. And if anyone can kill the fun out of puppetry, it's me. It's like, deadline! 
perfection, no sleep. When in fact, gosh darn it, I'm a puppeteer. I grew up to be who I wanted to be. It should be fun all the time, right? So stand up and talk out loud. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know how that process has changed for you, but I like, you know, how the process of writing has changed to you since the early days, but also how's your relationship with the audience changed? And how, cause you know, we mentioned earlier how it will change. It has to change because of COVID, but it came yeah. from such an intimate place before that. And then before that, you know, it was a step back. So there's definitely been this relationship with the audience that has informed how you write. So how has that yeah. changed over the years? Uh, in the, I would say in the past five or seven years, pre-COVID, so, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, I had this revelation. I was backstage one night peeking. I was doing my ritual. I have this big ritual I do backstage every night. Peeking. I'm a peeker. I have to have a, the crew has to set up the curtains in a way that there's a spot where I can peek and look at the audience. You know, I want to s- smell them. And I was <laughs> terrified. It was a Saturday night. And sometimes Saturday nights are the worst night in the theater because of dynamic pricing. They've paid more and they've probably gone out for dinner because it was their weekend. And the husbands don't want to be there and their bellies are full of steak and wine. And they don't want to see a damn puppet show, let's be honest. And so it was a Saturday and I was nervous and it was full. It was packed and they were boisterous. And I had this moment, Pete, of thinking, Ronnie, these people have spent $70 per ticket to see a puppet show. They've paid for parking and dinner. This is a big deal to them. None of these people have dressed up and gone out tonight hoping you fail. Oh, These people want this to work more than anything in the world right now for the next two hours. And these people for the next two hours, Ronnie, are your best friends on the planet. And that changed everything for me. I never viewed the audience as something to be corralled or at war with or, or disappointed in. It's like who showed up tonight? I and and it changed going to the theater every day since it's like, yay, who's showing up tonight? Because it's always different. There's always a different dynamic. And audiences don't know that. Audiences don't know that. I don't even know what it is. But something in the room goes, we're this way tonight. And that's pretty exciting. I get to go on a date for two hours. And invariably, (laughs) you know, I fall in love for two hours. You know, I'm I'm smart enough and old enough to know that, you know, they're not going to be waiting at the stage door with flowers and winking at me. Thank God. But I get to fall in love for two hours every night and then send them on their way. And, and so the audience is central to me in the work right now, central. And, and I do, I do consider them to a point, but at a certain point, Pete, you still have to just make your work, you know, but as I said earlier, I'm what's been on my brain lately is It's rare that the entire planet, everyone on the planet knows the same experience. Everybody will know what 2020 was and they will have their own story of it. So I don't, and this is, I'm getting very emotional. This saves me so much work because I don't have to tell anybody what feeling isolated and alone is like. I Mm. just need to create that sense with a character. I don't need to tell you what being in love is like. 
what being rejected in love is like, what loss is like, what absolute mirthful giggling is like. We all have these things in our frame of reference. And so I've learned over the years, I don't have to be that sassy 26-year-old that I was standing on a soapbox telling you because I'd figured it all out. I can just let characters have their experience in whatever the story is. And hopefully the audience then can do the, the most beautiful thing of saying, I don't know that particular incident, but I know that feeling. And when the audience connects with a character through feeling, it is the great aha. It's when the breath happens in theater. And that's what I've really learned. It's impossible for me to teach this to young artists because, because I was a young artist and you must as as a rule, as a young artist, be so full of your fucking self that you have to tell us everything all the time. <laughs> because I certainly had to, you know. But audiences are so smart. They know all those emotional touchstones. So just let the character have them. You know, let the character have their thing or their interactions and, and it'll all work out. You know, I believe that. You are listening to Talking Sock with one orange sock and Ronnie Burkett. We will be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Ronnie in just a minute. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch. Head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature One Orange Sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with me, Pete Davidson and Ronnie Burkett. Ronnie. Controversial topic to kick us off uh, in this no. half. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, let's, let's, let's preface that we love Jim Henson. We love Muppets. We do. But, uh, of course. We do. They, we know. And we have deep respect. But there is, there is a question, Ronnie, um, that as a marionettist I need to ask of you because you're working in North America and there's this thing about sort of the ubiquity of the Muppet. I want to know if this is a thing and if there is a problem with that with the prevalence of television and live puppetry and Western puppetry arts. And I guess the question I want to ask you is, do we need to strike more of a balance so that other forms of puppetry can exist and thrive in that space? Or do you feel like there is no problem and, you know, marionettes have and hand puppets and glove, you know, they all have their own spaces and they occupy those spaces. Is there a problem? Oh my goodness. This is, this is such a huge conversation, you know, and, and I do want to preface it. On the back of what you said, you know, I, I, Jim Henson changed the landscape of our craft. He made it so populist and, and so popular and was, was a fantastic innovator and artist, you know, so I just have to put that on. The other thing is, does anyone really care for my opinion? Either way, I'm an observer. I've been in this game for a long time and I'm, I think about puppetry actively every day, my entire life. And I've read about it and, and I, two things, one Pete, I, 
watched the Muppet explosion emerge. I, as a child, watched the Ed Sullivan show with those great sketches that Jim and gang were doing. And uh, the early specials, the Frog Prince and the great Santa Claus switch or whatever it was called, were shot in Canada. So they were on the CBC and, and that was very exciting. And so I watched this happened. And when I was in New York working for Bill Baird, it was on the cusp of the Muppet Show explosion. And it did explode. I saw our entire craft just go, this is puppetry now, you know, and <laughs> and and I, you know, I was uh, I was fortunate right after Bill Baird. I got to go work with Bonnie Erickson, who <sighs> designed and built Miss Piggy and Statler and Waldorf. I worked Rocky. in Bonnie's shop. Bonnie, to this day, is a dear friend of mine that I speak to regularly. You know, I was as influenced by that explosion as any puppeteer. And because I worked with Bonnie when I came back to Canada, I had those skills. I knew how to carve foam. I knew how to flock foam. I knew how to flat pattern. I'd learned from the master just by watching her in the short time I worked with her. But um, I had it. Most people don't know this about me, Pete. I had my focus in the 80s was television puppetry. I did industrials, commercials, TV series. And for five years of my life, I would go to Montreal for five months every year and do television series with puppets that were made by Jean-Guy White, who had worked at Hanson. Wow. So I was doing Muppet-style puppetry for years. Wow. That was what I thought my career might be uh, in tandem to the marionette shows. So I certainly cannot be critical of that in any way because I was part and parcel of that explosion and one of the ones who wanted to be part of that industry. When you think about it, Jim Henson invented a form of puppetry that was strictly for the camera. Yeah. And I love that, you Mm. know, I think all that aside. So, so that's my, that's my disclaimer that, you know, I was as influenced as anyone and I could show you reams of photographs for years of television puppets I made, be they foam or be they uh, latex rubber like Noreen Young, who influenced Mm. me when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did a lot of hand in mouth and rod puppetry for the bulk of my career. At one point, my studio had 400 foam puppets in it. Uh, And I think when I moved from the West to Toronto, I actually threw them all away. So I threw, I I don't have any, well, and foam deteriorates, you know, it's, it's a disposable material for a disposable um, industry. Right. So it's just like, Mm. shoot it, capture it. And it's done. And I loved that. But what I do notice now, Peter, (laughs) I'll get serious. Peter. It seems to be that people are just recreating the same thing over and over and over when there are actually artists in the world who are using fabric and foam in the hand and rod style to create different looks. And I think North America in particular is trapped in Cloneville. And more than that, you know, and you know what? Pete, honestly, I get it. I get being young and I didn't have the experience of Bill Baird's work or Noreen Young's work when I was at Nascent Puppeteer of having 
bed sheets and toothbrushes and stuffed toys of their characters. So I didn't, I didn't grow up surrounded by this imagery that, that I love. And we all love aspects of our childhood that saved us. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people who love them up, civilians or in our craft, who grew up inundated with that licensing and merchandising and the ability to own a Burt doll or a, an Elmo, of course, there's a deep-seated love for those characters by young puppeteers who got into puppetry because of that work. Mm. So to reference back to something I said in the first half, I post pictures of historic puppetry or other puppetry. More and more, I'm posting work of contemporary puppeteers, not dead puppeteers, but contemporary puppeteers who knock me out, who are doing amazing things, just to say to that community, hey, guys, look what this person's doing in this country with that same material, without saying, hey, look, guys, just putting it out there and hopefully, you know, you're an educator, Pete. I I have taught and mentored, but I don't call myself a teacher, but I have been in that position. And I realized there there are a few things that I cannot teach. And two of them are curiosity and discipline. I cannot make you curious for what beyond what you're curious about. I can maybe throw something beautiful in front of you and let you think you discovered it. And that's the reward. And that's what I do with posting those puppet pictures. And like I said earlier, the Russians were doing live hands. Uh, Bill Baird was doing live hands. The Russians were using carved foam long before Bonnie picked up foam and carved it. You know, Bonnie just in the shop was the first person in that shop who carved foam that way, you know, Um, and she was a costumer. So she didn't know the history of puppetry either. Um, I wish that in this um, current cycle of everything starting to look kind of the same, there was curiosity for the past where we might, where a young artist or a a working puppeteer might see something from the past and go, oh, this was Russia in 1952 and they did this, you know, and tweak their design sense. So that's, that's really my commentary is I, uh, and you know, people who work in television make so much freaking money. I just wish they would, um, you know, I wish they would spend some of that money buying the books and, and looking at something other than what they do, you know, but it certainly is a competitive field now. And there's a lot of stuff being shot. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, there's things being shot in Canada right now, big, uh, series, you know, I will say in my community, probably my dearest friends, uh, because I was in television puppetry for so long, but my dearest friends in puppetry are television puppeteers. You know, my two living mentors are Noreen Young and Bonnie Erickson, who were Muppets and CBC television. They were television puppet builders. And, you know, my friend Frank Meshkalite and Andy Hayward and Greg Ballora in L.A. So my dearest circle of puppet buddies are those puppeteers. You know, I love them and I love the work they do. Do we need a renaissance of the marionette? Do we need other kinds of puppetry? There's so much interesting stuff going on around the world. I think we just focus on North America and what's happening there. When in fact, in England and Iran and Germany, there's 
there's sexy puppetry going on, man. Oh, Dang. come on. Mm-hmm. Such, you know, and you, you're, you, you know, you, your plan before COVID was to go to Europe and dive into all of that Hungarian and Czech and Russian stuff. So, you know what I'm talking about. So I, I don't worry that we, I mean, I can't force anyone to do a marionette show anyway, but, and and, and it works for me, Pete, because I'm a theater artist and I'm a, I'm a playwright and I, I, I usually tell very dark stories, even though they're funny and dirty, Beautiful. but, but there's, there's, it's, it's grownups only, you know, I'm not for television. I'm a theater guy for adults. So, um, you know, I don't want to say to these Muppet obsessed young puppeteers, you should do what I do because most puppeteers aren't very good actors, frankly, and and theater puppetry needs really good acting. I mean, we can all sing songs about broccoli and friendship, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's why I quit television puppetry. I could only sing so many freaking songs about broccoli and friendship. It was like, mm-hmm. I can't anymore. But people love doing that. I just don't. I'd rather tell a story about the Holocaust or a guy's dead dog because <laughs> <laughs> oh, i'm oh. such a fun guy <laughs> hypothetical though like there was a time where thunderbirds other great shows that had marionettes in the 60s mostly when television was still new Penson was at this time inventing kermit and you know painting yeah. him but there was series that you know that used marionettes on camera and say a studio was to come to you and say we want to do a marionette show for tv Um, We want to bring that back, which I think with the stop motion doing what it's doing now and with kind of, there is a kind of a renaissance, a kind of a hark back to, to the, the old styles of creating, what am I trying to say? You know, the mechanical. I know what you're trying to say. Um, Yeah. The sort of retro vibe of of, of that stuff. And I've had those calls from producers over the last decade. Um, And I had one producer who said to me, anything you want to do. And I said, yeah, well, that would be marionettes. And she said, that's why we're having this meeting. And, you know, I came up with a concept and, but honestly, Pete, I just, I know this is going to sound insane to your listeners who just want to work on a TV series, but I'm telling you, I backed away because I thought I got to smell an audience. I, I'm a road guy. I like going to work at four in the afternoon and curtain up at eight. And that's my life. And I'm in the third act of this career. I don't want to go. I don't want to do that because it wouldn't be the most authentic, loving, joyful part of me. And that's all I have to give right now to the craft is I got this far. Please let me tell you, please let me tell you these stories. Now there's, I will not live long enough to tell all the stories and experiment with all the things I want to do. So I've actually said no to those producers who, who've come to me and said, let's do this retro thing because you know, somebody will, and there's, there, you know, there's a new sort of a spinoff of the uh, super marionation thing happening in England right now. Um, I follow them on Instagram century 21, I think they're called or something. And, and they're, they're doing new episodes. And so that's already happening and it's got all that camp sort of retro look to it. So huzzah and hurrah for them. It, it is happening. You know, I, I think a lot of, Puppetry is now derivative of a television style that was invented for television. It's funny. It, it, it grew 
it grew through in North America, certainly the Christian puppetry movement were the first to really glom onto that style yeah. of puppetry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that is an entire world of, of people that I'm not, I'm, I'm connected with a few of them, but they're, they're, you know, they're like a separate entity in puppetry that unless you're part of it, you don't really connect to it, but it's all that style. All of it. Well, so. it is. And on the flip side, I, I, that's kind of how puppetry really entered schools, I feel, you know, because it was, it was, you know, your scripture classes would come into the school and do, you know, half-hour puppet show. The funny mm. thing is, by virtue of it being from a religious point of view, when public schools kind of said, we can't have any of that, we can't have any, you know, of that sort of, you know, political and or religious bias in a classroom, it, mm. That's the moment that the, all that great stuff that was in our classrooms left. And so what I found in a lot of the schools I've been working in, in these really old, beautiful puppet kits that have just been left there with these Genesian scripts. And, you know, mm. it's, it's interesting. How do we reinvigorate that in a classroom if, if, if these guys did it so well by using the Bible as their text to base everything off? And what, what is the next text to get us into kids' classrooms? Yeah. Again? You know, it's a really and interesting you know, thing. Pete- I, I will say this about a lot of television puppeteers I know, you know, um, there seems to be a great curiosity right now for, you know, the British term and Americans, for some odd reason, are using the British term, not the American term, glove puppetry. And because I straddle both from our earlier chat about the library being half American and half British. Uh, and I was taught by an American named Martin Stevens who called it a hand puppet for God's sake. So I'm calling it a hand puppet, but a lot of television puppeteers are enamored and curious with glove puppetry. And that's exciting. And because of our mutual, you know, hero, Richard Bradshaw, mm-hmm. who's been all over the world and been to America a lot. Yeah. Shadow puppetry is exploding as certainly during the last year because it's more camera friendly for stuff at home during COVID. And we've seen a lot of shadow puppetry. So I I don't despair that any of the other isms of puppetry or forms of puppetry will disappear because each has their own innate, beautiful charm. And I think the marionette scares people, but as you mentioned, Baron Agrodnik, you know, is, is such a good teacher. And such a generous teacher and such Mm. a great artist and such a wonderful man. So, you know, I can't do that. That, That's not my wheelhouse to do it. I'm so grateful that Bernard Grognick is doing that. And I know so many young American puppeteers who are carving now because they have been carving with Baron. And and he gave us that. So nothing is going to disappear. Nothing is going to disappear ever, ever. I'm really interested in... You, you know, you just mentioned that you're in the third act of your of your career in this business, and and who does a three act anymore? Come on! <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is probably a one act show right here. But anyway, he points to himself. I'm I'm interested. I'm interested in reflecting back on your your shows. Which is your favorite? And do you have a favorite character? That's probably me and asked of you a million times. I'm sorry, hmm. but uh, you know, I'm really curious as to you know you've done so many. Um, I know what my favorite is, but I've only seen so many, so. What, what do you think? Hmm. Hmm. They're all different experiences, Pete. So, uh, you know, I love the ones I'm doing right now. I, I think overall, just to be easy, I, I love the Daisy because, um, you know, the, the Holy Trinity of Schnitzel, Edna Rural, and Esme Mazengill. Right. You know, if, if you get a signature character in puppetry, it's the greatest gift 
ever. I got three, you know, I got those three characters that are equal thirds me. So uh, um, they're not on television. So they'll never be wildly famous, but uh, you know, there's, there are people who will literally see the Daisy theater 11 times because they love schnitzel or they want to hear what Edna is going to go off on that night. Uh, so I would say that's the easy answer, but you know, I mean, Tinka's new dress gave me the world. That was the show that gave me an international career. And, you know, it was the first show I brought to Melbourne and it Tinka's new dress retired in Melbourne. Our last performance ever of Tinka's new dress was at the art center in Melbourne. And that was the, the final show. It was intended to retire there 10 days on earth. I love because I think, um, I think it made me a better actor because I was playing an intellectually challenged adult male as the central character through a puppet. Yeah. And not that I had to take that seriously because he was adorable and funny and sad and all the things a character should be. But I, I think I approached that character and that manipulation just a little differently than I'd ever touched a puppet before in front of an audience. And so for me, when you add a weight to a character like that, when, well, you know, another favorite character in Forget Me Not, which you've seen, Nutso, that little hand puppet of Nutso kills me Mm. because not only did I sculpt him and think, okay, stop, this is enough information stop. This is almost a perfect puppet sculpt, Ronnie. And I never say that. Just leave it alone. Make the mold. Go. That's the puppet. And and not so for me was, um, is a magical puppet, you know, and the fact that in the show, he, you know, he dies and then we have a funeral procession for him and the entire audience trails behind his casket. I mean, that's just, Pete, how weird is that? That Uh, I make this adorable character, then I kill him in a funny thing where he hangs himself on a tightrope. And then there's a funeral procession and a hundred people are wandering with their hand puppets behind him with their heads bowed. I mean, how did that happen? It's a puppet show. Well, that show though, like let's talk about that show because what you had in that show was devices that controlled the audience's experience and you used command terms, you used others rise, you used like me, you used these really, really clever ways of directing your audience to go to these places with you. See that, that for me is what made that show uh, flawless. Like, cause I, I never thought that you could manipulate your audience in a way that it was basically like a classroom, but immersed in a story. I want to know where you got that idea. Because I had gone to shows in Toronto that proposed they were immersive theater. They were environmental theater. They were not immersive. So I remember sitting in very awkward spaces watching really boring plays, basically. But I was sitting on the floor or, you know, covered in motor oil or whatever. And I was like, well, this isn't immersive. This is just shite in a garage, really. So um, I thought there was a lot of talk about immersive theater, immersive theater. You know, the theater, the theater loves to crawl up its own ass and have words. I mean, the word right now is everyone's an intersectional artist. It's like, whatever. I don't even know. Whatever, you know, whatever. Just what do you, what's your show about is all I'm interested in. But I'd gone to some of these things and I went, 
No, that's not immersive theater. Immersive theater would mean you need me there to make the show. You need me to light it with a flashlight or put the records on or, or, or carry that puppet casket. Or, and so that's where that all came from. And I thought, what am I doing? I, I am a hermit. Why do I want to be this close to the audience? Well, it's because that love affair started five, seven years ago. I mean, I had to fight with John, the composer, and my stage manager when I, when I proposed, we're going to press each music cue that, that we've recorded, that John composed, onto vinyl. And the audience is going to put the record on a turntable and put the stylus on the record. The audience is making that cue happen. And they were like, no, no, no. And, and I held my ground. And same with the hundred hand puppets beat that you all got. Crystal was like, they're going to steal them. People are going to steal the pup. And I'm like, no, they're not. No, they're not going right, to steal respect. the pup. Because... Well, you've seen me there, Pete. You, you've seen me in whatever body I have at that age, sweating like a madman. I'm not out there. I, I'm telling a complete invention. It's artifice. It's a made-up play. But in my own way, it is Ronnie saying to you, I'm telling you my truth, and I need you. Please be my community. Yeah. In a world where we've lost a sense of community and civility, I think. To walk into a room... And have this bizarre foreigner say to you, I need you to tell this story. And like when I wrote Puppeteers as a child, I am willful enough to make it happen. You will not say no to me. <laughs> I, I did see a few people every night kind of sneak out quietly. And it wasn't out of outrage. It was, that's a lot to ask from an audience. It's not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. And I knew that. I knew that going in, you know, uh, especially if you'd seen the Daisy Theater beforehand, you know, and I knew that. I said to my agent, you know, my agent didn't get why I wanted to do Forget Me Not. And he, he, kind, he didn't resist. He never resists. He just was like asking these ponderous questions over and over for a year. And I had a chat with him and, and I said, look, the Daisy Theater is our pret-a-porter. It's our ready-to-wear line. Anyone can have it. Anyone can try it on. It's a great date night. We keep the pricing populist. Anyone can come back three times. It's sportswear, right? <laughs> and I said, forget me not, is our couture line. It's not for everyone. And only 100 a night can have it. And it won't fit everyone. But it's mm. our couture line. And, and the minute I said that to him, he went, Got it. Yep. Because he, he needed to know how example. to sell this stuff, you know. Mm. It's not for everyone. But surprisingly, it's for more people than I thought it was because I had made the mistake of thinking what the audience was. And, you know, we did it in the basement of a jail, of a decommissioned jail cool. in Vancouver in Skid Row. And you didn't get to know where the venue was until a few days before the show and you got a secret map and it was a dodgy area to go to. Most people in Vancouver do not go down to the East end of Vancouver. It's very, it's very challenged, you know, with its uh, social issues that are on the street. And so to ask a fancy theater audience to go there and then go into a building and go into the basement and then do this with me. Well, they did, you know, they did because People are better than, than I give them credit for a lot of times. 
the audience, the audience is ready for a ride, you know? Oh, certainly. I think, you know, the moment you bought, bought that ticket, you're on, you're on board most of the time. I asked this question of Drew Wilson once and I got a really amazing response. So I'm going to ask you the same question. And that is, hmm. what is your favorite kind of story? Hmm. Oh, I, I think I do have an answer for that, Pete. All right. <laughs> I think I do. My favorite kind of story for me to tell, for me to tell, you mean? Sure. Uh, uh, sure. Is one that I've made up, but as I'm writing, and I, I, I've said this when I've, quote, taught, end quote. When you've made up a fantastic story, you know, take us an address or whatever, forget me not, this old crone who writes love letters. Oh, it's a, this is the premise. We're going with this. And we have a great title, Little Willie. I, I, I want to see that show. <laughs> you know what I mean? When I'm writing, what I didn't tell you, Pete, and so here I'm giving you some writer's advice. I always have right beside me a huge it's not a real thing, but it's a huge, in my mind, cauldron with coals under it. And it is a cauldron full of bullshit. <laughs> and what you do is you take a ladle of bullshit into your story and just pour it in there. And then you can tell one true thing about yourself. And then you put in some more bullshit from the cauldron. And then you can tell one more little thing that might have happened to you as a child or when somebody rejected you. But the audience can never think this is autobiographical. And they can never think this is completely made up. The audience has to be a little confused because it needs to feel authentic. It needs to feel authentic from two sources. And this is what I have learned. And this is, this is a mystical thing about puppetry. So slight two-line deviation. I have spent the last year rethinking what I think about puppetry because I've been forced to sit in this room. And I have actually reread about 800 of these books, that I, right. some, of which, some of which I used to throw across the room, especially the academic ones, because I... I actually threw one academic book across the room so violently once I mistreated a puppet book. But, you know, I reread it this year and I went, okay, I, I see your point now, you know. But I think what has to happen in puppet theater is there has to be a whiff of authenticity from the performer and there has to be absolute authenticity from the puppet character. Yeah, okay. But we have to know when to get the puppeteer performer out of the way so it's not a solo show that they could do without the damn puppet because there's a lot of those shows. The puppet is the god. That is the sole reason I'm in this craft, is to give life and authenticity to that thing. But its story might have some of my childhood backstory of abuse and horrible things that happen. Or I might have made that up. It's not for the audience to worry about that. It just has to reek of authenticity. And sometimes the cauldron of bullshit smells truer than a true story. Wow. Those are my favorite stories to tell. Those are my absolute favorite stories to tell. Where I am actually standing out on stage knowing exactly what is Ronnie's backstory and exactly what is made up. Flip that for me then. What is your favorite story to read or see performed? The most, the most humble, joyful, folksy, 
hand puppet show is what delights me more than anything on the planet. I have begged every young puppeteer that I've known and worked with to please do a little booth hand puppet show to start. And I will sit on the floor and clap with glee over little mitten puppets on your hands being ridiculous and romantic. And, oh, is there anything greater than seeing glove puppets or hand puppets doing a romantic, serious scene because of their little tiny arms and their impossible mitten bodies. But when, when a great puppeteer imbues those figures with that earnestness, you believe they are the most beautiful, wistful characters on the planet. That's the, that is for me. If you, if you do a hand puppet show for me, I, I'm yours. I, I, I love that the most of anything. And it doesn't matter what it is. Um, it, it, it can be Shakespeare. It can be a folktale. It can be nonsense you've made up on the spot. That for me is the greatest thing. You can't find a lot of people <laughs> rushing to get some hand puppets happening. <laughs> no, they won't. They won't. Unfortunately, every, everybody I've worked with, even every assistant who's come out of here and three of them have done major shows. They've never done a small hand puppet show in someone's living room. They've never lugged it to a shopping mall and said, no, everybody has to be Ronnie Burkett out of the gate. And I'm like, Ronnie Burkett wasn't Ronnie Burkett out of the gate. I toured schools for eight years. I did this for 12 years. I, you know, I, 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 I trust me, I, I didn't have a dressing room with a bathroom until I was in my forties. So, you know, it, <laughs> And so what yeah. I'm seeing in puppetry is, you know, aside from the, the Muppet question you asked is people, people starting too big to be serious artists out of the gate. When in fact, I think they're, I think they're missing the point of puppetry, which is what I told you I'm trying to get back to is that it's a joyful, beautiful, rustic thing, you know, but if you just set out to be a great artist of puppetry, doing a major theater show and you also you'll work less you know you're going to work a lot less if you have a small show that can go anywhere you'll work all the time all the time baby i had a bag stage show that was a suitcase and a thing my mother sewed for the stage that i threw over my shoulder i flew on little bush planes to go to the arctic in that i went to the Golan heights with that show i i put it on greyhound buses like if you can pick it up and go set it up and do a show that's that's showbiz baby you don't you don't need a freaking truck full of stuff on your first go. Cause most people don't do a second show when they start that big. I found. Well, that leads me to think, and it feels cruel because I know that you can't, but you've gone, you travel so much of the year yeah. and you've gone to these places like, like little places like that. Just, ah, oh, that's where I want to visit next. Cause no one else gets to go and do that. And particularly mm. not perform a puppet show to a completely, you know, new audience, new culture, new people, mm. Where, where do you want to go next? You mean geographically? Sure. Yeah, I think so. Or do oh, Okay. Oh, let's go that. And then let's go where do we want to take the, take Ronnie. Yeah, okay. 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 Cause see, I'm, I'm thinking with you here. Um, um, you know, it was interesting that when I got home last March, I was supposed to be home for a while. We had finished a month long run in February in Vancouver. Forget me not. And, and we were supposed to be home. And so lockdown happened and I thought, yay. This is, I would be on my pajamas for six weeks anyway. This is fantastic. And then I'll <laughs> get on a plane and leave, which is what I'm really good at. And where I was leaving to next was to go to Germany. And Europe had kind of disappeared for me. We had some weird government policies with our conservative 
previous government who killed um, touring abroad. And then, you know, Europe got kind of xenophobic in a way and weren't bringing in a lot of international. Anyway, it just all changed. And I watched my Mm. beloved European career just kind of disappear. So the opportunity to go to this festival in Germany in May was so exciting to me because they wanted forget me not and to do forget me not with a German audience. I thought, Oh my God, this is going to be fantastic because German audiences are so, you know, intense On and it's an intense show. Right. Yeah. So I, I couldn't wait. And I thought maybe this will open up Europe again. So I would like to go back to Europe and also the most exciting puppeteers that I follow on Instagram happen to be over there. Where do I want to go? I should have moved to Australia 30 years ago when I first went there. I said at the time I should just move here. I should be single and move here. I should have just made myself single and moved to Australia because Australia is it's, it's my heart home because it is so much like Canada, except without the parkas and the winters, um, you know, you're sexy Canadians. Like, Oh, you well, know, if we, that's interesting. We find Canadians. And, I find Canadians very sexy. And you know, Melbourne, I love, I, I, I love Melbourne. I just, I just want to stay on the road, Pete. I, I really do. And America had started opening up again. I avoided America for a long time. I will say this about an American audience when they love something and they they have a sense of discovery in the theater that they're seeing something they didn't know about before. Their enthusiasm is uh, unmatched in the world. Mm. It is unmatched, you know. So I'm a road dog. This was, you know, Martin Stevens said to me when I was a, a child or 12 years old, he said, you do know, Ronnie, if you want this, you're going to be on the road for 40 years. And it's been over. 40 years and it's still okay for me he was trying to talk me out of it in a weird way i happen to love hotel rooms and eating at 11 o'clock at night and i i love it i mean i can't imagine being on an airplane right now or a hotel right now quite frankly so i have to retrain myself when i'm able to go do that but i just want the world um and i think that's why my parents put me on those planes when i was a child because My mother was a little afraid of the world, but fascinated by it. My father had missed a few opportunities to be at the the Australian Olympics, for example, on the Canadian team. And uh, and he had had lost a few opportunities to be in the world. So every time I went into the world, he was so happy. He wanted he wanted the stories of what the world was like. So I was I was raised to be curious for the world, not afraid of the world. And those puppet books only reinforce that, you know, to see Czech puppetry and German puppetry and British puppetry. I, I, I couldn't wait to get out there. And so, you know, anyone who's ever been on my crew, Pete, will invariably say to me, how do you have best friends in every city we go to? And I'll say, because puppetry, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, that's it. I'm Switzerland, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, you were, you were part of the group in Sydney. You guys yeah. came out en masse as a group. We did. And then we, ha- we, we met afterwards and, and that happens everywhere to me. And I feel this great affection all over the world because of puppetry and because I'm a moving target. And during the Sydney run of forget me not, because we, we didn't get to Melbourne, I had, three friends, four friends on separate visits come from Melbourne, like flew to Sydney. 
they need oh, to come we will. see the shows. Yeah. So that is, that is my experience in the world. So for me, the world is, is, I mean, I love this home. I love where I'm at. I love my home and my life, but my home is also out there doing that. And, and I can't imagine that stopping. I hope it's not stopped. I think that's the definition for me of puppet power hashtag, because that's, that's why we do it. Like, I just feel like this, this is the community that we're a part of and that is what puppetry power is. So is Ronnie Burkett a five act play? What does Ronnie, what does Ronnie want to do? Well, it's going to be the longest third act you've ever seen. Ah. Um, <laughs> years ago, I had, you know, I go through a lot of stage managers. Just Crystal, who you've met, my stage manager now, has been with me like 10 years plus. And, and uh, I'm keeping her. She's never retiring. And, and I think we've made that blood pact. But, <laughs> you know, before Crystal, a lot of stage managers would last on the average two years. And then they would go, oh, it's actually not a vacation. Because touring is not a holiday, you know, and if you go on tour thinking, I'm going to all the museums during the day and I'm going to have lunch with people during the, I don't do any of that on tour. I, 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 I'm on tour to do a show. So um, when people realize they're not on holiday, it's actually a job in a really great city. And they think, oh, I, maybe I just want to have a real life back in Canada. But I had a very earnest young stage manager and we had hired her at quite a young age, thinking we're going to really train her for a long haul in the company and she'll she'll stay with us a long time. Well, she didn't. She stayed short than anyone because uh, she realized she wanted to get married and have babies. And you can't argue with that. It's like, you should go have your best life. So on her last day, uh, I said, well, I hope you find the life that you want. And uh, when you have those children, when they're 16, you can bring them to Uncle Ronnie's puppet show when they're old enough to come to an adults only show. And she very earnestly Pete, put her hand on my arm and looked at me with all the earnestness of a 24 year old. And she said, Oh, Ronnie, by the time my children are 16, you'll be far too old to be doing this with all this scenery and all these puppets and all that text and singing. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? You're no, no. And I said, you're right. Because by the time I'm that age, I hope I figured out how to stand on a bare stage with three puppets and tell you the most glorious story you've ever heard. I took it as a challenge. So, uh, you know, I, I have friends who have promised to smother me with a pillow when I'm wearing Crocs, a fanny pack and have a ponytail. That's the end of my career. <laughs> so you can actually just kill me when I turn into that guy. Cool. But I would like to just keep telling stories with puppets because you know what, Pete? I haven't figured it out. Um, I, I, this is going to sound silly. I honestly feel like I'm just starting. I really wow. do. And now that I'm reinvent, I'm relooking, not reinventing, relooking at hand puppets. I'm like, all right, what are we going to do with that form? What, I've got some ideas of what I'm going to do with hand puppets that haven't been done before. So I'm just starting on that road. I, 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 I don't ever feel finished. You know, it's like, what's next? What's the next? And, and then there's the curse of, you know, my biggest curse, Pete, is I, I go to bed with an idea every night. So you don't sleep. And I much. wake, <laughs> no, and I wake up with that idea. And it is kind of a curse because I basically sleep three hours a night. But 
I have my whole life gone to bed with an idea. Some of them are stupid, but some of them have been pretty good. And I wonder what it would be like to go to bed without an idea, you know? And if that day comes and lasts more than a day, maybe that's when it's done. But until then, I got ideas, right? And now that I've reread 800 puppet books this year, I got all kinds of new ideas. I, I'm, I think I was wrong about half of it, you know? Oh, so let's, let's try the new stuff. We just want you to keep going, money. That's what we want, that's for sure. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I, I want to ask you what you think. Normally, this is the part of the show where I'd ask people what they think the state of puppetry is in, in this country, in Australia, but also mm. over the world and whether or not it's thriving or whether or not it needs, it needs something to keep going or to keep reinventing itself. What do you think puppetry needs? I'm just going to ask that question. Hmm. Well, I've, you know, I've listened to all of your interviews and I've listened to, you know, and, and because I've been privy to being, um, uh, treated with such affection and kindness every time I've come to your country. I feel like I know the community well, actually. And I've heard the discussions about training, you know, and this is a discussion across the board of training. What do you do? And and I know your own personal journey that was stopped, Pete, was about continuing your training in in a really focused way. Um, outside of Australia. This might be more controversial than anything I'm going to say. Unless your parents need you to get a degree, and unless you absolutely need a degree, I've been telling people for the last three years, don't go to theater school and don't go to a theater school to learn puppetry unless you need the degree, unless that's part of your trajectory and and you want to be an academic or you need them, you want teaching in your back pocket or whatever, you know, if you 14 year old Ronnie Burkett who knows he's just going to be a road pig working puppeteer for hire and you don't need a degree. Tell me how much money you have allotted to your education. And I will help you go to the little angel for their course and then to go to Prague for that course and then to go here for that course and then to get an internship somewhere in America where you work for free. It might be in an SF, a special effects shop or wherever. We can look at the whole world and what's available. And in the course of a year or two, if you have that much money, you will not only have all those skills in your hands, you will have met your community. So that's actually my advice to young artists who know for a fact they want to be in the game performing as puppeteers. It's a different story if someone needs the academic world. But I I think that's a little controversial because uh, I don't think one place can give you everything you need. I mean, Lumen Code and I, we have have the National Theatre School here. And my stepdaughter Mm. went to the National Theatre School. Three-year program, it's boot camp. We have the National Circus School. Uh, and Lumen Code and I, oh gosh, 25 years ago, thought we should, we should, you know, get some funding and do the National Puppetry School with the same model of funding and do it. That's what I want to do. And so we, we can't, we were trying to write the syllabus and, and we realized we would need a six year program to teach everything we thought needed to be taught in a puppetry school before you unleashed them. You know, not two years, not one year, not four years. Six solid years. Well, to become an electrician in Toronto, you have to you have to apprentice for six years to be an electrician. So right. why why can't we assign the same standards 
to puppetry. You know why? Like why is every <laughs> everybody gets to call himself a, pup- a puppeteer? And nobody goes prove it. You know, it's just like that's the most glory. That is the most glorious and maddening thing about our community. It like, is any. <laughs> Dork, any dork with a pie plate on their hand can walk in and go, I'm a puppeteer. And we all go, yes, you are. And I'm like, some days I want to go, no, you're not. You bought two pies and you ate them and you taped them together. But, you know, maybe that is puppetry. Maybe that is. I don't know. I think I, I anyway, to get back to the original point of your question, Pete, I agree with <laughs> training is always an ongoing question in any country, I think. Um, and I've listened to that it's a concern in Oz of, of how do you train and, and how at some point in professional work, it gets competitive, you know, because people are going up for the same jobs or whatever. So how do you have an association of colleagues and peers and also be in a competitive industry? These are ongoing questions, you know. I haven't found that so much because I'm kind of a lone wolf now. You know, I'm not I make my own work for me. So it's not like I'm taking work from anyone and I'm not auditioning for stuff that someone else is up for. I remember those days though. And that's when you need training. That's when it's all about technique. It's your manipulation skills and your vocal work and how to work a monitor and how to tape your script onto the monitor. Like all of these things that need to be taught and learned and and, um, practiced over and over and over and over, because that is the thing about any artistic discipline. It is the repetition of technique that makes you better. It is not about doing it once and then it's done. So you've seen live puppet shows where obviously that company has done that show many times and it's slick and it's oiled and it's, sexy because you know every breath every beat is precise you don't get that on your first outing you don't ever get that out and and uh, that's where rigorous training and discipline comes into play i agree with you mm. i want to extend that question now to internationally where do you see puppetry being and it's really hard to see it without the covid lens that's yeah, on yeah. at the moment but let's say you know take us back to 2018 you know, internationally in Canada, elsewhere, this is talking talk internationally. I want to know what your thoughts are on where, where is puppetry globally right now? And is it in a good place? Mm. Well, I will say with the COVID lens on, what it did do is it gave me time without deadlines or having to be anywhere to actually engage with some puppeteers around the world that I normally might not have. I might have scrolled by or whatever. And and I've seen a lot of what's going on in the world because of this past year, you know, and 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 the stuff that's really exciting out there. That's a really good question, Pete. I, I don't know if I'm such an authority to know really, but it felt like puppetry in the legitimate theater was no longer that big a deal. I, I mean, in a good way, that it wasn't like, oh my God, there's puppets in this show. You know, in Melbourne, you've seen it uh, with the opera, uh, all of that stuff everywhere. And so my concern is if the theater is like restarting again, <laughs> are puppets going to have to like knock on the stage door again and go, hey, remember us? Or, or did we already get our foot there firmly? And, and I think we did. You know, I, I do think we did. There's everything but the thing I want to see. It got really big, right? There's Lion King, your magnificent Kong that came from Melbourne. You know, War Horse, of course, Handsprings, incredible work. Mm-hmm. I personally hope that 
what this shuttering has done and the reemergence of the theater is we get to see small puppetry again. Really intimate, beautiful puppetry with hidden puppeteers in a booth. We don't have to see your face. We really don't need to see everybody's faces in puppetry all the time. My own included, you know. So I would like us to regroup, get small. And, and small does not mean lack of experimental or sexy or dark or, or small shadows, small rod puppets. Small. I'm just talking about really letting the puppeteer take full responsibility for the show again and not these massive things that seem a bit detached from puppetry to my mind. I see what you mean. All right. Ronnie, last question. And you know, you've already last question, last question. You've already mentioned a lot of them, but who are your, perhaps your contemporary heroes in puppetry and who would you like to thank for your career? What are the names that we should know? All right, let's let's talk about contemporary first, and and uh, she is contemporary. Uh, you know, I, this is random, so there's no um, uh, hierarchical order on the list. Yeah, none at all. But you know, I, I thought of her today of uh, Lindy Wright at the Little Angel Theater, who I think influenced uh, an entire generation of British puppet designers with her stylized, simplistic, gorgeous puppet designs, a uh, true hero, and, and, and was very kind to me personally. Mechthild Nienaber, in whose name I might have mispronounced, in Germany, who does things with fabric in, in basically a hand and rod style, but creates sewn puppets that are, she's the perfect marriage of an artist, designer, and a technician. And to see those nice. two come together, it's fantastic. Rolf Hansen in Denmark, I think is our most playful and experimental puppeteer that I see working today. We've mentioned Bear McGrognick and his work. There's a fellow I only whose work I only really got to know in the past year, and it's only online, is Peter O'Rourke from Cubic Feet Theatre in the UK, oh. mm-hmm. which knocks me out. I, I, I swear, anything he posts, my jaw drops, and I'm like, I have to share that imagery. And recently, you know, there's something going on in Iran. I've clicked into all of these puppeteers in Tehran and uh, there's one and I'm going to not say her name properly um, Monir Molevedela I think it is Monir who is doing things with carved foam rubber that is I just I send it to every Muppet obsessed builder I know it's like look at this this is foam rubber look what's happening here there's Duda Paiva in, in the Netherlands stunning work and of course gorgeous the the goddess to me because I, I just don't understand the work and that's why I love it. It's it's the most it it's the kind of work that I look at and I think I I don't understand why I love this so much and you scare me is of course Ilka Schonbein mm-hmm. who I think is the greatest living puppet artist we have today. So wow. there are so many others. There are there there are so many good puppeteers out there, but those are the ones top of my head that I, that I would say Mechthild, Monir, Rolf, Peter O'Rourke, Ilka and Duda, you know, it's healthy out there. I mean, it's very healthy and none of those people are building Muppets. So I think the art form is to answer your question. I think we're just fine. Go ahead and Muppet clone children because there's the, the other thing is happening too. 
And, and I think each in our own way, we appreciate everything everybody's doing. I really do. You know, I, I will say, oh, this we do. I think, I think this year has taught me that we are all struggling. We are all desperate to be relevant, to be seen, to not be forgotten and to, to be puppeteers. That, that is for me personally, a lifelong dream worth living, you know, to say I am a puppeteer is the greatest thing in my life. And that's all I ever wanted to be able to say about myself before all the other isms about who I am came into play. And, and I see that. I see that an online activity is our community, whether they're working in wood or foam or fleece or dancing nude with a puppet or doing a mall show or doing a shadow puppet. It doesn't matter. I, I see the community saying, I want to be a puppeteer. And, and I think, you know, for any flippant thing I might have said in our interview, I'm reminded this year that I need to have the spirit of generosity that I have always been met with, you know, especially in these times, especially in our community, because people need to know they have an artistic community to be part of in a lonely profession. That's absolutely it. So who helped you become a puppeteer? I mean, you've mentioned them before, but who would you like to thank for making you a puppeteer? Mm, I would say Noreen Young and Martin Stevens primarily. Oddly enough, though, my real heroes were not puppeteers. They were people who saw a young puppet boy and said, you go, you know. So I would say my high school drama teacher, my high school art teacher, my singing teacher uh, when I was a teenager, my tap dance teacher when I was a teenager, the librarian in Medicine Hat, Mr. Robert Block, the children's librarian in Medicine Hat, Alberta, who put books aside for me. And for my parents who didn't understand this, didn't understand this at all, but had an amazing capacity to not say, they never said, yes, you should go be a puppeteer. We've signed you up for all these courses, like a lot of modern parents do. My parents actually beautifully never said no. They're just like, all right, <laughs> you know, whatever. But I think those are my heroes. The people in my day-to-day -day life who saw this interest and who didn't understand the craft or what I wanted to do with it, but just said, go. Do you know, this is a great story, Pete. In high school, I had aligned my afternoons so that I had drama and art class back to back. Hey. And my drama teacher and my art teacher, invariably, if I had a gig, would mark me present in school when I was out on the road, because they both felt I was learning far more about drama and art by going and making that $50 gig in some school gymnasium a hundred miles away. So they marked me present in class. That was the kind of support those heroes gave me. And yes, there were many puppeteers along the line. And, you know, I will say this, you know, a lot of my heroes and mentors were very disappointing because I, I hadn't planned on them being human beings. <laughs> and what do you think happened? I showed up Pulling and up the they pedestal. were human well, not even that. I understand it now. You know, I'm sure I've been quite disappointing to a lot of people because, you know, I'm a human being and I'm incredibly flawed and opinionated and cranky sometimes. But it was interesting to meet them all. And, and I think the fact that any of them opened their door to me, anybody who let me in the studio or their home, that's a hero. That's a real hero. Rock on. That's what I that's what I try and do in puppet land. You know, I may not have the answers, but I have the books and I'll make you dinner. So that's as good as I can give back, I think. Oh, Ronnie, 
I'm coming to Puppet Land. That's going to happen. <laughs> you certainly are. I invite myself in there just like you did. Well, we are, we are out of time, Ronnie. Thank you so much for talking soft Thanks, with us Steve. today. Thank you. You can find Ronnie at Ronnie Burkett and Ronnie is represented by John Lambert and Associates. You can also find Ronnie on Weeper, the World Encyclopedia of Puppetry Arts. Thank you for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we will talk sock again soon. Thank you, Ronnie. Thanks, Pete. And we're done. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at OneOrangeSock.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Sock. Talking Sock.